0: Please join with me in prayer. God, we pray that uh, as a result of Your Word being uh, read and proclaimed, that we indeed would abound in hope, that we would indeed be filled with all joy and peace in believing as we trust in um, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. You know, all week as I was studying this passage, my mind kept jumping back to this last verse that Jim read. And it is such a beautiful verse. It's one short sentence, but it's more than a sentence. It's a prayer that Paul prayed for the Roman Christians. And that prayer is not restricted to them alone. Uh, But it also is a prayer that Paul prayed for us. And so i want to read verse 13 again, and I urge you to read it along with me. But don't just read it. Read it prayerfully that God would grant us the wonderful things that He has promised in this prayer. So listen as I read. Pray along with me as I read. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You know, hope is in in short supply these days. Real hope in short supply. and you, You may be saying, well, Pastor, you just haven't gotten over the Falcons yet, losing in the Super Bowl. So maybe that's why you're you're, uh, struggling with hope. Well, yeah, I probably am still having a hard time with that. Um, But I'm talking about hope here as the Bible defines it. Biblical hope. Biblical hope looks forward into the future. Biblical hope looks towards Christ. And it looks toward the day when every wrong will be made right, when every tear will be dried, and where every evil will be destroyed. It looks forward to seeing Jesus face to face. It looks forward to never having to lose another battle in our ongoing struggle with sin. But hope is in short supply because instead of focusing on hope, it seems as if our attention is so riveted to the here and now that we are distracted from looking to our future with our Savior. You know, we have the daily concerns of our family. We have the daily concerns of our jobs. The daily concerns of of living that simply need our attention. But then we're also bombarded by the media. We have print media. We have internet media. We have cable news media. We have social media. We have entertainment media. And all of it is competing for our attention. You know, businesses, they take real special care to send out their advertisements across all the platforms of media. So, for instance, I would be real surprised if uh, there was someone among us that that did not know that McDonald's has changed the size of their Big Mac hamburger. You've probably heard it and heard it many times. Uh, you've seen it uh, in the newspapers. You've seen it on the billboards. You've seen it in the commercials. You've heard it on the radio stations. Um, You've probably had ads placed on your Facebook page. It's been tweeted out. You know, we all know that now there are three sizes for the Big Mac. And it's not only McDonald's that's doing this. Every business is eager to put before us their products. And so there's just a lot of stuff coming at us. And then you also have the politicians. You know, they want to make sure that their message is cut through all the noise and the constant um, advertisements, and they want to make sure that they're being heard too. And so we have protests here, protests there. Um, We have politicians doing and saying all kinds of things. You know, and then on top of that, there's the news. You know, and we need to be informed citizens. You know, things happen in the world that we simply need to know about. You know, and I could go on and on. But my point is, by having our attention so closely focused on the here and now, having our attention being bombarded by things that that are uh, catching our attention, we're not spending adequate time nourishing and deepening our hope in God. Rather than nourishing our hope in God, I would suspect that many of us feel rather starved when it comes to our hope in God. But God's promising us here in this passage in verse 13 that He, the God of hope, will cause us to abound in hope. God's not just offering you a little hope on the side. Look again at the last part of verse 13. He is promising that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Are you abounding in hope? Hope in God? When you look up the word abound in a thesaurus, there are some words that are suggested as synonyms. For instance, flourish. Are you flourishing in your hope in God? Another word is overflow. Are you overflowing in your hope in God? Or my favorite that I saw in the the thesaurus. The, 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 the um, it's uh, to be up to one's ears in. You know, I want to be less attached to the latest news cycle so that I can be up to my ears in hope in God. God is promising that to us in this short prayer that Paul prays at the end of our passage here in verse 13. And yet, we feel kind of starved. When it comes to the hope of god hope in God, because all this other stuff. So I want to encourage you, dwell on his hope. Dwell on the good news of Jesus Christ, that he is the risen Savior who loves us. Put down the cell phones. Shut out the distractions. Open God's word. Dwell on a passage of Scripture or even a verse and just dwell on it. Feed on it. Fill your soul with it so that your soul will also feast upon the God of hope who has promised to fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And if you're... Struggling to to find a passage of scripture that you might feed upon. If you were looking for a good book to uh, feast upon, I didn't warn my wife I was going to do this. But uh, you know, sometimes you come to the pastor and and I give you, oh, well, you need to read Calvin's Institutes or something, you know. And it's more discouraging. Well, if you really want to get some good books on hoping in God, dwelling on God, my wife's been reading many. Uh, great books lately. She could probably have a whole list that she could give you um, if you're looking for a good recommendation. So Dwell on the God of hope. Build your hope in God. You know, this prayer in verse 13 doesn't just come out of the blue in Paul's letter. He's not just writing and stops and offers this one-sentence prayer. Rather, this prayer flows out of the verses earlier in our passage. So look at verses nine verses 8 and 9. Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So in verse 8, uh, Paul says that Christ became a servant and He became a servant for two different purposes. These two different purposes are marked off by two purpose statements. Uh, the two in order phrases um, in verse 8 and then also in verse 9. So the first purpose is that Christ uh, became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So that's the first purpose for why Christ came to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. The second purpose is that Christ came to be a servant or became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. It's as if Christ is a source of a great river that divides into two parallel branches or watercourses that cut through history. Christ came And there are two purposes. One, to demonstrate God's truthfulness in fulfilling all of God's promises. Two, to demonstrate God's mercy to the Gentiles and so bring glory to God. In this first branch or first purpose, Christ came to the Jews to fulfill all of God's promises to them. Every one of God's promises point to Christ and find their fulfillment in Him. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are a yes in Christ. All God's promises point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Find their fulfillment in Him. Beginning when God called Abraham to leave the city of Ur... God made many, many promises uh, to His chosen people. Many of the promises were fulfilled literally in the Old Testament, but others were too great and too glorious to begin to be fulfilled in the Old Testament. Even the promises that were fulfilled in the Old Testament were only partially fulfilled because they looked further into the future than the Old Testament fulfillment would allow Those promises pointed to something more. And that more was Jesus. Jesus told the Pharisees in John chapter 5, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. If you believed Moses, you would also believe Me, for He wrote of Me. And so, Moses wrote about Jesus. Moses wrote about God's promises that have their fulfillment in Jesus. In Luke 24, Jesus was teaching His disciples, and Luke says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. And we could go through and give many examples of this. In fact, I was grousing this morning when I was talking to Jim because I had, uh X'd out about five pages of my notes that I wanted to add in as examples of how the Old Testament points to christ but i I cut them out and uh so if you want if you want more information i'll I'll print you out some pages <laughs> um, so this this one branch, as I've been using this illustration of the river this one branch of the river flowing with Christ. First of all, there was this one river and it took a branch, It broke off into two branches. Both branches are flowing with Christ. One is flowing through history, fulfilling all of God's promises. Christ flowing through. Every promise that God made to the Old Testament saints are being fulfilled in Him. And then this other branch is also full of Christ. And we find this other branch of the river in verse 9. Paul says, "...and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy." Now, I guess I should start with verse 8. Uh, "...for I tell you that Christ came a, became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness," jumping down to verse 9, "...in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy." When Christ came into the world as the Jewish Messiah, He at the very same time came as the Savior for the world. Uh, He never intended to save the Jews only. The Gentiles were never God's plan B. You and I were in God's heart and purpose from eternity past. We were part of God's unfolding plan when God called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees. We were in Christ's plans when He entered the world and while He was ministering. We were in His heart as He hung upon that awful cross. The Jews did not fully appreciate that the Gentiles were co-equals in God's purpose. So what Paul did here in Romans 15. Because remember, uh, the the Roman church, Jews and Gentiles are being brought together in this one church. And their struggles between the Jews and the Gentiles, there's probably struggles between the poor and the rich, between the weak and the powerful, because remember some of the poorest of the poor were becoming Christians, being enfolded into the church, but there were also uh, Roman centurions and uh, even people from Caesar's own household coming to Christ. So you had all these different people being gathered together in this one church. And so uh, Paul is... Is reminding them that, reminding the Jews especially, that uh, the Gentiles have always been a part of God's purpose. He's encouraging the Gentiles that they have always been a part of God's purpose. And the Jews did not fully appreciate this. So what Paul did here in in, verses 9 through 12. He strung together a string of Old Testament passages to make this crystal clear. Paul quoted second from second Samuel twenty two verse fifty in verse nine. He quoted Deuteronomy thirty two verse forty three in verse ten. He quoted from Psalm seventeen verse one in verse eleven, and he quoted Isaiah eleven ten in verse twelve. In other words, Paul quoted from all four of the major sections of the Old Testament. He quoted from the writings, Second Samuel. He quoted from the law, Deuteronomy. He quoted from the poets, uh, Psalm 117. He quoted from the prophets, Isaiah uh, chapter 11. And he did this to show that God's intention all along was to save the Gentiles along with the Jews. So look with me as I read the last part of verse 9 through verse 12 as he quotes these different Old Testament passages. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles hope. All the way through the Old Testament. The Gentiles were on the heart of God, were in the purpose of God. All the while, God, as He says in verse 8, sent Jesus to be a a servant to the circumcised in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. According to verse 9, Jesus came into the world that we might glorify God for His mercy. I want to dwell on that, that, uh, that verse for just a, a moment, because most of us here this morning are Gentiles. And so he says in verse 9, Christ became a servant in order that we might glorify God for His mercy. You know, it's important just as we look at this passage to see that we are in need of mercy. That's why Christ came. That's why God sent Him. We all need mercy. And so Jesus came to show us God's mercy because we need it. And we will never, ever, this side of heaven not need His mercy. We were born into this world as sinners Therefore, we need God's mercy. Every day that we have lived in this world, we have demonstrated that we are sinners. We sin against God. We sin against others. We even sin against our own loved ones. I guess if it feels possible to sin against ourselves, we do that as well. We're sinners. Even at our best. Even at our most godly. We still sin. We are always in need of God's mercy. But then that's why Jesus came into this world. In order that we might receive God's mercy. Have you ever been humbled into recognizing that you need God's mercy? That you cannot make up for your sins by your good works? That at your very best, you need God's mercy? There is nothing, nothing, nothing you can do to make up for the way that you have offended God and you have offended your neighbor. You simply need to humble yourself enough to receive God's mercy. Jesus went to the cross to purchase God's mercy by standing in our place and taking our punishment that we deserve to receive. So I ask you again, have you received His mercy? Because He offers it to you as a free gift through Jesus Christ. It's the whole reason Jesus came here to earth. That the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. He offers it. Are you receiving it? Christ's mercy to you also means that you must show mercy to other people. People in the church can be some of the most judgmental and unforgiving people in the world. And I purposely said people in the church rather than Christians because not everyone in the church is a Christian. In the parable of the unforgiving servant, Jesus said uh, near the end of the parable, then the Master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that... That debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Mercy we have received, mercy we must show. So Christ in that one river splits off into the two branches, and these two branches are running parallel to each other through history. But the but the river does not remain divided forever. The two branches flow back together. That was God's intention all along. Listen to Ephesians 2:11 through 15. Paul's writing to the to the Gentiles and the, the congregation. He says, "Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the 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 uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel." strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And I could have gone on for several more verses in Ephesians 2. But again, I... Uh, wanted to be conscious of the time in Ephesians three verse six, Paul says this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so these two rivers going parallel come back together in Christ because the whole the river is Christ. And his intention, his purpose was to bring the Jews and Gentiles together into one body, as he says over and over again. And so as the river flows back together, it flows into Paul's prayer in verse 13. So you see how this this happens, or, or my method here? We looked at verse 13. We want the hope that God gives has promised us. How do we get it? We look at Jesus. We look at Jesus as He faithfully kept all of God's promises throughout history. Those promises made to the Jews. And at the very same time, we look at Jesus as at how He purchased mercy for us poor Gentiles who were separated from God. Aliens and strangers to the covenants of promise. In other words, verses 8 through 12 essentially say that God is a promise-keeping, a mercy-showing God. In other words, He is someone you can trust. Paul in verse 13 properly calls Him the God of hope. Look again with me at verse thirteen, uh, the first part. May the God of hope fill you. The God of hope. In other words, you can trust him. He's not been slack concerning concerning his promises. He's not been faithful or untrue in regard to any of his promises. He has fulfilled them more gloriously than we could ever imagine. Also, he is merciful to sinners like you and me. He gives us hope where we really should have no hope. He indeed is the God of hope. And He wants you to not only trust Him, but to experience all joy and all peace as you trust Him. He wants you to abound in hope. He wants you to be up to your ears in hope, in His hope. You know I know some of you struggle with that. you believe there's you you believe and trust in Christ, but there's just a tinge of doubt that God would love you so much um, in spite of your sin and so that little bitty tinge of doubt that he would love you is like a a a, a a plug missing in your soul and all your joy, all your peace is just leaking out. All your hope in God is just leaking out because you know that Jesus came and died for your sins. But you know, I've got some pretty big sins and they wage war against your joy, against your peace, against your hope. You know, it just seems reasonable to you that you're still a sinner. You should still have some guilt, still have some shame mixed in. And you don't see anything about that in verse 13. If this is you, if you struggle with hoping in God, if you struggle with joy and peace in the Christian life, I want to reason with you just briefly as I conclude. You know, we've seen a great mercy i'm sorry we've seen a great river of god's mercy and grace cascading through history this river of grace and mercy christ is that river and the river of god's grace is able to wash away all your sins all your past sins all your present sins all your future sins so even if you were to stand before the river of God's grace, and try and build a dam with your sins, His grace would plow right through it. Let's say that your sins are so filthy, so abject, so embarrassing that the blackness of hell is, seems, um, seems bright and white compared to you. Or let's say that the hardness of your self will is so hard that granite seems soft in comparison with your heart. Let's say that the best you have, or that when you have been your best, that you know you're still a hypocrite in your heart. Let's say all those things are true about you. In other words, you're in a pretty bad condition. Before God, the good news is you stand in need of His mercy. The further good news is that He loves to give His mercy. That's the whole reason Christ came here to earth. That Gentiles might give Him glory because of His mercy. That Gentiles might receive His mercy. You come to Him just as you are with nothing else but this promise here in verse 13, this prayer in verse 13, that God is the God of hope that can fill you with all joy and peace in believing, you come to Him with simply that prayer, nothing else. He will do it, poor soul. You struggle with guilt, struggle with shame, Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. His river of grace will wash all your guilt, all your shame, all your condemnation clean away. And I've painted a picture here of a rushing river. But I can't make you drink. I can bring you to Christ in the preaching of, of His Gospel. But I cannot bring you to Christ. But Christ can bring you to Him. And that's why He came. Will you trust Him to do just that? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I really cannot pray any more than what Paul prayed for the Roman Christians and prayed for us so many uh, thousands of years ago, that, God, that the God of hope would fill us with all joy and all peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit we may abound in hope. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.